Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. This episode, we are very lucky because we're joined by a friend and colleague. We all love to hate him. We all hate to love him. Grant Williams Pritchard. Hey, Grant. Hey, how's it going? Good. Now, Grant is a colleague of mine. He also lectures anatomy and physiology. And the reason why he's in today is, I think, personally, he's better than Matt. He's smarter than Matt. He's better looking than Matt. That's true. And Matt's also in India still, helping the med and nursing students do their clinical anatomy. Matt will be back shortly. Now, today, Grant, we're going to be looking at the brain, and we're going to have a look at the cerebral cortex of the brain. We're going to have a look at the cerebellum, the various lobes of the brain, their functions, just a whole bunch of fun stuff. Wow. You ready? Sounds cool. Have I you ha- done I've any reading? I've have you prepared? No, I've got one, so I, sh- I should be right. Oh, yeah. I but, think. Okay. Let's see. We'll see how we go. Right. Grant said he's got a brain. We know that Matt doesn't have a brain, but Grant does. So what we want to begin with is maybe a little bit of a history. So we know that for the past five odd thousand years that humans have had an inkling, some sort of understanding that the brain has been associated with some sort of mental functions. So cognition, um, mental health, whatever that may be for them back then. And the reason why we know this is because we've seen skulls, we've unearthed skulls that have little holes burned into them. Now, this is the process of trepanation or trepanning, and this is where they cut little holes in the brain, well, cut little holes in the skull, I should I say, say. That's not a good idea. For various reasons. Like I said, they've been doing this for about 5,000 years. They've been doing it in Europe, Africa. They've been doing it in the Americas. The reason why, not too sure, but we think that it's a result of those suffering from, back then, mental illness. Now, it could be if somebody had a brain injury, maybe they needed to burr these holes to relieve some of the bleeding, some of the pressure. Who knows? Now, 5,000 years. In the Middle Ages, there were signs that surgery on the brain could alter the mind. So mental functions, mental capacities. And we know this because it's depicted in a painting from the 1400s. And the painting is called The Cure of Folly. Now, folly means madness, 
Grant. Oh, or at least it did back then. You should know a lot about this topic. I know a lot about this topic. Everyone knows I'm slightly <laughs> mad. You've got to be mad to do our job, I think. That's true. Now, in this painting, the, the Folly of Madness, it shows a barber surgeon because we know that back in the day, surgeons, barbers, quite synonymous. You go to a hairdresser's and you have got that pole out the front with the red and white candy stripes. Oh, yeah, yeah. That that's supposed that. to be uh, a sign from the Middle Ages to show we are a barber slash butcher because they used to wrap the bloody uh, rags around the pole. Oh, nice. And that's what the sign of the barber butcher is meant to be. Anyway... This painting shows a barber butcher in his coat and it shows him cutting into the scalp of an individual and there's an inscription on the painting which says, Master, dig out the stones of folly, meaning take out the madness. So they knew that there was some sort of, um, that surgery could alter the mind in some particular way. Uh, so they thought by removing that part of the brain they could get rid of that particular Exactly. And this has progressed ever since. So early, uh, late 1800s, there was a Swiss physician. He performed surgery on individuals that were diagnosed with something called, I hope I'm pronouncing this properly, primaire verictite. Right? Does that sound good? Yeah. Primaire verictite, which just means primary madness. Now, this is probably akin to like our current schizophrenia. So he basically took six schizophrenic patients and he just dug out random parts of their cerebrum. That sounds cool. He said there was benefit in three. He's so proud of what he did. He presented this at the International Conference, uh, International Medical Conference in Berlin, and his colleagues said, uh, probably shouldn't do this anymore. And so this type of surgery didn't happen again for another 40-odd years until the early 1900s. So 1930s is where the frontal lobotomy technique started to take off. Now, the reason why this happened was some surgeons took two chimps. I think it was Lucky and Becky. Chips or chimps? Chimps. Sorry, chimpanzees. Chimps. Chimpanzees. Um, Close relative of yours, Grant. Yeah. They may have taken a couple of second cousins. Probably. Becky and Lucky. That explains a lot. Yeah. It explains all the hair (laughs) on your back. (laughs) And your penchant (laughs) for throwing your fecal material at me. True. Um, I'll try not to do that today. Well, I... You say that now. I yeah. dodged one before. And so they took these two chimps and they performed frontal lobotomy. So this is basically taking out part of the frontal part of the brain, the frontal lobe. And they said that this had altered the mental capacities or specifically altered the behaviors of these chimps. And to them, this was a benefit. So they said, okay, we're able to calm these chimps down by taking out part of the frontal lobe. They didn't really talk too much about the fact that they also had Cognitive deficits and motor deficits, but they push that a bit of a side effect. That's a side effect. Doesn't matter. Okay, well we're able to calm their behaviour, but yeah, okay, they couldn't perform these motor tasks very well. They couldn't throw their feces then. Yeah, well, or at least couldn't throw them as as well as you could. Yeah. Now, since so, over twenty lobotomies were performed on the frontal cortex or the frontal lobe very soon after that, within six months, and they won a Nobel Prize. For this and the reason why there were no deaths, you know, f- first hip, uh, part of the Hippocratic oath, oath do no harm, mm-hmm. so they weren't killing people. So I thought, Good okay, job. not killing people, there's some benefit, yes, some detriment, but nobody needs to be able to throw their poo in a, in a straight direction, right? That's true. So they thought, we've got a good thing here, and it took off. In 1940s, it became commonplace to do frontal lobotomies, and uh, these frontal lobotomies, in just one year, an individual called Freeman 
in the States performed over 200 frontal lobotomies in 1942, just in that one year. That's impressive. He must have been busy. He thought it was impressive too. He was so impressed with that that he bought a Volkswagen camper and started traveling around the States in his lobotomobile, which he actually proclaimed as his lobotomobile, performing lobotomies to whoever he thought needed it or whoever would put their hand up and say, I've got this unruly child. Let's perf-. And did you know most of these frontal lobotomies performed on women? That makes sense. Not, does it? <laughs> well, no, there I goes half of our listeners. <laughs> Don't worry, everyone. Grant <laughs> won't be back after this episode. <laughs> after this episode. So... Frontal lobotomies, 200 in 1942. He hopped in his little lobotomobile, travelled around the country. By 1949, over 10,000 frontal lobotomies were performed. Now, after a while, his colleagues, other professions started thinking, well, we don't think digging into... Now, the way they did this was you always think about that ice pick in the nose, right? Well, that happened a bit later. In the beginning, a good number of these lobotomies were performed by drilling burr holes in, in... right at the temples and then sticking a rod through the holes in the temples and swishing around the rod to destroy some of the white matter. Just sort of random then. You weren't really going after oh, yeah. anything specific. Absolutely. And it's called a leucotomy because it's getting rid of the white matter. So mixing it all around. Nice. And then Freeman thought, you know what? I can do this a lot faster. I don't have to drill these holes. I'm just going to get an ice pick, stick it up the, uh, into the eye, right? So push the, push the eye to the side, put the ice pick into the eye, yeah put it up into the top of the orbital cavity and just a couple of little hammer taps would break through the orbital cavity and go into the frontal lobe. Did he clean it first? Just using... So, no pain relief, right? Just ethanol, alcohol, booze, basically. So, he kept his alcohol on the ice after using the ice pick and then used the ice pick for... I don't know if the ice pick was on the ice, but... (laughs) I mean, Break, breaking up the ice. Oh, breaking up the ice. Potentially. Breaking up the ice and then breaking up the brain. Yeah. So he, uh, he after a while, yeah, colleagues started saying, you know what, we probably shouldn't be doing as many of these. And in the 50s was started the era of pharmaceuticals. So psychoactive drugs. And these psychoactive drugs were even named by Freeman as chemical lobotomies. And so there was one particular drug which was used by over 2 million people in one year. Wow. Yeah. Psychoactive drug in the in the fifties. So anyway, the whole reason why I've spent what the past ten minutes <laughs> talking yeah. it's interesting is first yeah. thing is that um there's a big history of what's going on in the brain and we know that they were digging into the frontal lobe of the brain because it was affecting behavior. And that's right. something we're gonna get because the frontal lobe does actually play a role in behavior. But before we get there, Grant, I know I talk yeah. a lot and you know you know this. I know it very well, yeah. I think uh, we should talk about the brain generally. Yeah. Uh, how it, it, its energy sources, how it metabolizes certain uh, energy sources. And then we'll start talking about some of the basic neuroanatomy. Okay. And then Sounds we'll go good. to the lobes. What do you reckon? Sounds like a good plan. Right, I'm going to ask you a question. This question oh, is, no. your brain has one primary energy source. Do you know what that energy source is? Uh, for me, I think it's lollies. It is. Gummy bears, I oh, think. Oh, look at that. Yes. Yeah. And uh, what are gummy bears made from, do you know? I know it's not real bears. No. No. Glucose. Because if it was, you'd eat more of them. <laughs> Probably. Glucose. That's it. So your brain's primary, basically its sole energy source, is glucose. And 
The only time in which your brain won't use glucose and use a secondary energy source is uh, in prolonged starvation periods. Ah, uh, when okay. we sort of run out. Run out of glucose, yeah. which isn't like if you do intense exercise and not eat, you'll run out of glucose within 6 to 12 hours. Wow, that's pretty quick. So your glucose stores, even though you think, okay, liver stores glucose as glycogen, kidneys and muscles also do it as well. We've got storage there, not for very long. Okay, so... That means we need to eat glucose. We shouldn't be on an Atkins diet. Right. I mean, that's up to the individual. But I wouldn't go on an Atkins diet and remove every bit of glucose from my body. The brain, just so basically the brain will consume about 120 grams of glucose, which is approximately a cup of sultanas. And in a day. That's in a day. Okay. Now, if you're doing some intense mental activities, so like, like I do, maybe not what you do. Yeah, I try to avoid it. I oh, know. I will walk into your office. What are we this black talking stone. about again? Uh, uh, brain. Oh, yeah. Brain. Sorry. I'll I'll drag you back into the conversation Thanks. when needed, if that's okay. Um, <laughs> brain uses twenty percent of the entire body's glucose supplies. Yeah. Twenty percent. That's a fair bit, considering the brain only weighs one to two percent of the entire body weight. It's a, bit it of a hog for glucose. Though. Yeah, like you, like you. <laughs> when I've got lollies, you will take as many of those yeah. lollies as possible. You pig. It's only fair. And did you know 60 to 80% of this glucose is used just for the sodium potassium ATPase pumps? I had no idea. Yeah, now you do. And the reason why... Sorry? What do we need those for? Sodium potassium chucks three sodium ions out of the cell, throws two potassium ions into the cell. Gotcha. And because sodium has a positive charge and potassium has a positive charge, you're throwing three positive things out and only throwing two positive things in you're generating two separate gradients. You're generating an electrical gradient where it's a little bit more positive outside the cell compared to into the cell and a chemical gradient where you've got more sodium outside and more potassium inside. Right. We need this gradient because without this gradient, neurons will not fire off. That doesn't sound good. Doesn't sound good. So the last episode uh, I did was by myself doing action potentials, just freestyling, baby. That's the way you like to do Off the top of my head, talking to myself. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> all right now i'll have to listen I'll, to that one you won't no probably not. <laughs> people probably don't know that you were basically the one that brought me in to teaching you were my boss you were my boss early on grant did you know do you no. remember that you those were run, those you were running. Were the good old days. Those were the good old days <laughs> when I just used to wander into the labs, help some of the students, yes. blood glucose measurements, yeah, neuroanatomy, mm. bit of this, bit of that. And then I'd leave without a care in the world, yeah. and then you'd have to run the lab with sixty students, yeah. and I. Now you've pretty much taken over. Yeah, like yeah. we were just talking before that. I asked Grant the question: Does he see me more as a father figure or as a boss? And he said. What was the answer to that? I guess I said as a god. I? I don't know. <laughs> maybe I meant dog. Oh, maybe dog, it was dog. God. Yeah, Does, I got mixed up. Maybe you've got a, an issue with within your Winnikis yeah, area. Yeah, part of my cerebral of cortex on, yeah. on language. That could be. And, and if I shut up soon enough, we can <laughs> <laughs> we can get there. I doubt that'll happen. That's not going to happen. <laughs> All right, I got more facts here. I want to yeah, talk what are about. We talk? Oh yeah, brain. Brain. I'm bringing energy back usage. Go yes. Ninety nine point five. Have you got any lollies? Um, I don't. I think you ate them all before I came in. Oh. You offered me some, and then when I went to grab some, you pulled it back. Yeah. Yeah, monster. 99.5% of the glucose is metabolized via oxidative processes. What's that mean, Grant? <laughs> oxidative. something to do with oxygen. Yeah. 
It needs oxygen. Yeah. We can't use, we can't turn that glucose into ATP without oxygen being present. So we need lots of glucose and lots of oxygen. That's right. We need to breathe. Brain to work. That's why if you don't breathe, brain doesn't get energy. How's all that stuff going to get up there? What? The oxygen and the oh, glucose. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think we're talking about? Oh, all right. I haven't had enough sugar because you oh. ate it all. Through the through the heart, pumping it via the bloodstream. Oh, of course. And because of that, cardiac output, our brain receives 15% of our cardiac output. So five liters a minute is the cardiac output. 15% of that goes to the brain. How good mine's about two liters. You, mine uh, is. Yours is two liters. Yeah. Two f- that's about 20%. Yeah. So yours is a little bit more. No, mine less than that, that five liter value that you stated before. Is it? <laughs> that's why maths is poor yeah. I'll, I'll just reiterate the fact about 15% of the cardiac output goes to the brain whatever that is yeah. what is that 15% of what's well, 15% of 5 litres it must be close to let's have a look so 2 0.15 this is embarrassing especially that this is recorded it's okay they can't see what you're doing 0.15 no yeah 0.15 that's, that's 15% times 5 litres is 0.75, oh. 750 mils. So 750 mils, and you said two liters goes to yours every minute. Seven. That's, about, why, my, that's why my head's so big. I know, it's swollen. Hydrocephaly, I think it's mm. called. So in one minute, nearly a liter of blood will go just to your brain every minute. And in that blood's going to have the glucose and the oxygen. Okay, now sometimes you don't have enough oxygen, and so the brain can use lactate. So lactate's produced as an anaerobic means for energy source when we right. don't have enough oxygen. So aerobic oxygen, anaerobic, no oxygen. Uh, the other main energy source, let's just say if we have zero glucose in our body, is something called ketone bodies. Ooh. Do you know what they are? No. Uh, so okay. Do you know when they're <laughs> produced? Do, okay. Do you know a pathology in which ketone bodies are produced? Oh, I know. I've heard of something called diabetic ketoacidosis. I hope so. Be. Because I think you lecture diabetic ketoacidosis, so it'd be good if you did know about it. Yeah, I tend to forget, but yeah. What are we talking about again? Brain, brain, yes, brain. brain. So energy <laughs> usage and lollies and lollies. So let's just say an individual who's a diabetic, right? So that means they basically, let's say, type one diabetic doesn't produce any insulin. They have zero carbohydrates, zero glucose zero insulin, they can't use the glucose that's locked away in their bloodstream, their body is forced to use an alternate energy supply. And so what they do is they break down fats into energy. Now, the thing is that acids can't cross the blood-brain barrier. And the reason why is because fatty acids are fats, they're lipids, they're insoluble in blood. Right. So they need to be bound to proteins, and proteins are too big to cross the blood-brain barrier. Fats should be able to get in, but... Fat can get in, but it can't because it's bound to albumin and various proteins, so gotcha. it can't cross. So how do we then get this fat as an energy source? The liver will take fatty acids, turn them into ketone bodies, and these ketone bodies can cross the blood-brain barrier and then be used to create energy and glucose. Uh, good on your liver. Good on your liver. Problem with that is when you create ketones, you create acid at the same time. That's not good. And that's why it's called ketoacidosis for diabetics, and that, you're right, is not good. All right. How do we stop that from happening? Insulin, baby. <laughs> Give them some insulin. Once they've got insulin, they can bring that glucose into the cells. That makes sense. And give them some glucose too because yeah. they may be starving themselves of glucose. 
Um, all right. Now, in addition to that, before we start to move on, I think we should start talking about the cerebrum, the brain itself, right? Yes. Now, the cerebrum good, is the m- starting point. The starting point. Now, which, which part is that? That the cerebrum is the the main body of the brain. The cerebral hemispheres, two sides of the oh, brain. That's like like the cap on the mushroom. That's the cerebral cortex. Oh, close. So the cerebrum is the two big chunks. Yeah. Connected in the middle by something called the corpus callosum, which allows for the connection to go from left hemisphere to right hemisphere. Right. And then we've got, like you said, the cap of the mushroom, which is this thin layer of neurons, which is called the... Cortex. Cerebral cortex. That's right. Now, the cerebral cortex, if you take the surface area, is about 1.8 meters. Quite big. Wow. Do you so know, my, my head's not that big. So why is it? So why is the surface area so big? If you look at your t- pathetic-looking brain, right? It's the surface area that great. So how do we have 1.8 meters of surface area? What is it about the brain? What is it about the neuroanatomy? I've seen the brain before, and it looks like a like a bowl of worms. It's got lots of hills and valleys and stuff. It's not just a flat surface. Exactly. Why do you so reckon we have this? So that we can increase that surface area. And if we increase so if we, the surface area... We can fit in more neurons, yeah. or the, especially the bodies of the neurons, yes. which I think are in that cortex. Perfect. God, you're smart. There's a no, reason... That, yeah, that's about it. That's all you know. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it was Grant. good. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, these bumps, these bumps that come up, right? What are they called? Oh, gyrus. Gyrus. And the grooves down, like the valleys? Sulcus. A sulcus. The hills, so the valleys, So gyrus yeah. is a bump up, and the valleys, the hills, gyrus, valleys, sulcus. sulcus. And they're all throughout the brain. Those those undulations. And like you said, they increase the surface area, so we have more neurons we can fit in, so more activities, more funks can occur. Are there any specific ones? Because they look kind of random, but... Uh, neuron types. No, sorry, the gyrus and the sulcus. Okay, so there's some very important ones. If you look at the external neuroanatomy of the brain, you're going to find that there's going to be one uh, sulcus down the middle called the central sulcus. Now, this is a groove down the middle. Now, this goes across from basically, you know, left ear to right ear. So that's the way, so there's that big central sulcus there. Now, in front of that central sulcus, we have a lobe of the brain. And behind that central sulcus, we have a lobe of the brain. Now, the lobes of the brain consist of the fine cortex in various areas. Right. So, how thick is the cortex? Do you know? It's only like two to four millimeters, I think. It's pretty yeah, thin. Very thin. And that two to four millimeters, so it's, it's gonna, there's going to be like 25 billion neurons in there. 25 billion. 25 billion. That can't which, be right. And there's, oh, that's right, baby. And those neurons are going to be attached to axons. So these yeah. are the highways that send the signals. And these right. axons are going to project all throughout the brain. There's 100,000 kilometers of axons. Is that, does that sound right? No. Well, it is, baby. And then, Wow. How, and many, how many times could you get to the moon with 100,000 kilometers? Well, now you're testing my few. understanding of, the moon, <laughs> of where the moon is. Oh, that's a different one. Let's podcast. say quite a few. Okay. And hopefully that's correct. And considering that if we've got 25 billion neurons, right, and neurons can talk to other neurons in various different permutations, so various different arrangements, the possible arrangements that you can have of neuron talking to neuron is 100 trillion different permutations. Wow. And they're called synapses, so 100 trillion potential synapses. That's impressive. How many particles are there in the known universe, Grant? At least 100. At least 100. That's yeah. true. You're not wrong. No. So you're hedging your bets. 
there is less there are less particles in the known universe than there are permutations, permutations. of synapses in the brain. It's how complex. It's the most complex structure in the universe. I'm getting tired just thinking about it. Tell me about it. Where's those glucose yeah. gummy bears at? All gone. That was your job. That was my job. All right. Should we talk about the lobes? Is there anything you, we should talk about before no, the lobes? I think the only thing I think you mentioned before about hemispheres and what's that referring to? Okay, good point. If you look at the brain, you look at it from a bird's eye view, you'll see that there's a big, long sulcus that goes right down the middle. That's called the longitudinal sulcus. and that Fissure, I think, because uh, it's a bit deeper. Yes. So, f- yeah, very true. Fissure. Yeah. Because, it, you're right, it goes deeper. And this longitudinal fissure will separate the left hemisphere from the right hemisphere. Now, basically, you've got two brains connected. Cool. Two hemispheres, yeah. two brains connected by just a some axonal tracts that go from left to right. So if you were to look at the brain's outer surface, it looks gray. And if you were to cut into the brain, depending, it doesn't matter how you cut into it. If you cut into it and look in, you're yeah. going to find that there's gray matter and white matter. I have heard that before. So explain the differences difference? for me. Uh, from what I've heard, the, the gray matter, sort of like the, the thinking part of the brain, that's where all the action is, all the action potentials generated, the cell bodies of those neurons. Yeah. Um, whereas the white matter is white essentially because it's Fat or fatty? It's it's. Why is it fatty? Because uh, it's coated in myelin. Ah, uh, okay. Essentially, that's the the highway or communications of the brain. So that helps speed up the nerve impulses as they spread from one region of the brain to the other. So, so if you were to take a a single neuron, which is going to have a cell body connected to this big long axon, the cell body generates the impulse, does all the understanding and thinking. However, that may happen. That's correct. Maybe the seat of consciousness, these neuronal bodies. And then it projects the signal down these axons. So the cell bodies are the gray matter. It's gray because there's no fat surrounding it. And the axons, the highways, are the white matter because they're surrounded by the, that fatty myelin sheet. That's correct. Yeah, that's the insulation, insulation around those cells. So anytime you see white matter in the brain or spinal cord, they're just sending signals. Yeah. Whether it go, it's going to or from the brain. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And so that means that the cerebral cortex is gray matter. Mm-hmm. So it's composed just of cell bodies. So it's telling us it's very important in understanding, making sense, all those higher order functions. Exactly. You agree? And then the tissue just deep to that is the white matter, providing the communication between all those cells. Perfect. Shall we move on to the lobes of the brain? Sounds good. Do you want I'm me to start? Forward to it. I'd love Let's, for you to start. Can you la- okay, can you name the lobes? I'm testing you now. Oh, no. I know they're sort of named based on the, the skull bones that sit on top of them. Okay, so all the skull bones then. Oh. Back to first principles. What's the one that sits at the front? Front. That one's easy. Yeah. It's the frontal. Okay, frontal lobe. Um, then I know just posterior, just inferior to that, we've got a pair of bones. So I always think of that as the parietal. Pair, parietal. Oh, parietal. that's good. Yeah. So we got the parietal. So that's uh, just behind the frontal lobe? Yeah, that's correct. Near the um, the top. Yeah. And then if we keep going back, we've got the occipital. Okay. Okay, so that's near the back base. Yep. And then, oh, I know there's a couple other ones. Doesn't the occipital refer to eyes? Yeah, and we'll talk about that later in okay. terms of the the um, the function behind Oh, that. okay. You ever think of the eyes in the back of your head? Yeah. It also comes back to that ah. um, function of that part of the brain. Gotcha. Um, back to the lobes. Yep. So just below the temporal, uh, sorry, I just gave away <laughs> the other one. Just below the parietal, we've yep. got the temporal so that's our. F- we've got four, and so that's at the temples. That's an easy yeah. way to remember. Frontal, parietal, yeah. 
temporal, occipital. There's one more, right? I think that's it, isn't it? What about the insula? Is that often known as a lobe? Oh, uh, every once in a while. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. It depends on the textbook. The insula is sort of like the, that one is. It's like the ground level of the cerebral cortex, sort of like sits underneath if you were to get, sort of like separate the uh, front, uh, the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe, you should be able to see part of the insula. Oh, that would make sense. So sort of inside the brain. Yeah. That's a good way to remember That's it. That's a good way. Oh, just pat yourself on the background. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Oh, Educa- educator trained. of the year I just here. trained a muscle Sorry. <laughs> I just want to tell everyone that Grant and I and Matt but Matt wasn't here to receive it we won a citation award with the vice chancellors what's it actually called it's called the uh, Griffith well there's the university that we work at I haven't yeah. told anyone that before the awards for excellence in teaching so we got a citation award for learning and teaching because we're bloody brilliant go us go us I just thought I would uh uh, Pat ourselves on the back. Yeah, there we go. All right, so let's start at the frontal lobe. What do you reckon? That's, I think, a brilliant place to spark. <laughs> place to spark, yeah. <laughs> See, my frontal lobe is not working. We'll talk about the dysfunctional regions of my brain. Oh, we'll talk, okay, well, let's talk about uh, Grant's frontal lobe <laughs> at the moment. And if you were to map the frontal lobe, remember I said in the middle of the brain, basically from ear to ear, which is just a, you know... Everyone needs to remember that today we're going to be doing, we're talking about gross simplifications of structure, gross simplifications of function, because the brain is far more complicated than what we're giving it credit for today. Now, this central sulcus that goes basically from ear to ear, sort of. That was the valleys. That's, yes, sulcus, that's a valley. Valleys. So it's the, a big groove that sits right in the middle of the brain. In front of that is the frontal lobe. Okay? Now, gotcha. the temporal lobe which is sitting at the temples, also articulates with the frontal lobe with something called the lateral sulcus, but it's a little bit deeper, so it's a fissure as well. It's called the sylvanian fissure. So, superiorly and posteriorly, the frontal lobe articulates with the parietal lobe via the central sulcus. Gotcha. And lateral posteriorly or posterior laterally, it articulates with the temporal lobe via the sylvanian fissure or the lateral sulcus. Is that okay? Makes sense. Yes. That makes sense? All right, cool. So it's at the front, in front of the parietal, and sort of above the temporal or above and in front of the temporal. Yes. Now, frontal lobe, it's going to have a number of cognitive functions. So the cognitive is going to be referring to understanding your behavior and so forth, and motor functions. So in actual fact, there's a part of... So if we take that central sulcus... So the most posterior aspect of the frontal lobe, gotcha. Right, just in front of that central sulcus, or the most posterior aspect of the frontal lobe, there's a bump up because you're going to have a, a dip down the sulcus and then a gyrus, the bump up, then another dip down and bump up and so forth. Gotcha. So just in front of that central sulcus, we have what's called the pre-central central gyrus. gyrus. Okay, that makes sense. So makes sense. Precentral, so meaning it's just in front of the central sulcus. Exactly. And this precentral gyrus or precentral bump up is what we call the somatosensory motor cortex. No. no it's called the somatomotor it's called the somatomotor a, a cortex. Sensory motor cortex. I'm 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 a I'm a sensory guy. Yeah. And so it's I called know the you're very sensitive. somatomotor cortex. Somata means body, right? Soma means yeah. body. So somatomotor cortex is talking about parts of the body that we can move consciously under conscious volition. So hands, eyes, tongue, 
Oh, so that would be like your skeletal muscles. Yeah, skeletal muscles. So this pre-cortex innovates the skeletal muscles. Buddy. Now, if you have a look, so it's not very wide, and it goes all the way. So it starts there in the middle, and it will go. Yeah. So remember, there's two hemispheres. So you're going to have a left hemisphere premotor cortex, uh, left sorry, left hemisphere motor cortex, and a right hemisphere motor cortex, and both are situated at the pre-central gyrus. Hopefully, I'm not confusing anybody. No, I think I've got it. And so let's just take the one on the right. Now, they mirror each other in the sense that there is a topographical map of this pre-central gyrus that maps to different parts of the body or different skeletal muscles that innovate different parts of the body, which means that you're going to have part of this pre-central gyrus that's mapped to the hands Part of it that's mapped to the face, that's mapped to the legs, that's mapped to the genitals, that's mapped to the head. I know, Grant's <laughs> eyes just lit up right then. And so you've got a topographical map of the body on this motor cortex. And this is because if you were to get a um, some sort of stimul- uh, stimulatory equipment and put a little electrode in this pre-motor, uh, pre-central gyrus, the motor cortex is what we call it, and stimulate it, that part of the body should move. So if wow. I go to the part... Can we do that now? We can do that now if you want. Or we, can, we can use those trepanation <laughs> holes that you drilled in earlier. Yeah. We can push it in. So if you put it into the part of the motor cortex that's associated with the hands, hands should move. Feet, feet should move. Wow. Now there's this map of the body is called the motor homunculus. I've heard of that. And we could, actu- we could actually map it if you want. Do you want me to say where each part of the body is mapped to? Not really, but okay, I know you're anyway. going to. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's because your answer should have been yes. And let's have a look. So, basically, if if we were to take a look, most laterally, so let's take the right hemisphere, the right motor cortex, right hemisphere, most laterally, so towards your ear-ish, right? Or that side. Yeah. That's going to be face. Gotcha. And hands. Face and hands. Face and hands, and then it moves up. As it moves up towards the top of your head, it's going to start moving towards the body and then goes to the legs and genitals as it gets to the center. I've also heard that it's contralateral or something. So what's that mean? I don't know. All right, I'll tell you what it means. Contralateral means that that right motor cortex in the frontal lobe, situated at the most posterior aspect of the frontal lobe, but anterior to the central sulcus, called the pre-central gyrus. This is getting confusing. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. That right-hand side will control all the motor movement for the left-hand side of the body. Wow. Why would that be? Why? Because the neurons cross over. Ah, uh, as they're heading down the spinal cord. That's right. Let's skip over to the other side. That's right. So these motor neurons will cross over from the right to left and then from the left to the right. So right-hand side controls left-hand side of the body, left-hand side controls the right. So when it comes to stroke patients, if a stroke patient has had a bleed in the motor cortex, a couple of things you can figure out. You know which side, depending on if, let's just say, the left leg stops moving, then we know it's the right motor cortex that's been affected. And if it's the left leg, then you know what part of that motor cortex has had the bleed in it. Homunculus mapping. Because of the homunculus mapping. Now, just in front of that, anything else about that motor cortex? No, I think that's pretty thorough. So, okay. we could talk about, uh, we could talk a little bit about um, plasticity of the brain, and that if somebody does have a stroke and part of that motor cortex is no longer firing off or working, right. then 
you can have parts of the brain that sort of neurons that start to project out into parts of the brain that aren't working. And that's why people can regain control or at least partial control. It's not necessarily because that area has gotten better. It's just because neurons like to move around and they love to get innovation and fire off and so forth. And so there's there's room for movement. Oh, and, you've also, and you've talked about the number of networks that can be created. That's right. So it might be also creating new networks within the brain. Yeah, exactly. Now, that's the motor cortex. In front of that motor cortex is the pre-motor cortex. We're still in the frontal lobe. Still in the frontal lobe. Now we're moving towards the front of the brain, like towards our forehead. Yep. But we're still at the back of the frontal lobe. So just in front of the motor cortex is the pre-motor cortex and the association motor cortex. Now, we still don't have a very strong understanding as to what they do, but we know that they inform the motor cortex. So they basically give us some information from the frontal lobe about what we should move, when we should move it, how we should move it, and the context as to us moving it. So because the frontal lobe, which we're about to talk about, its cognitive function has to do with behavior in social context, it will tell us when and what we should move this pre-motor and association motor in the social context. So it gives an emotional basis to the movement. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes the word association. You sort of give up the idea that it's bringing together different types of information from the brain. Bingo. That's it. That's it. There's a because so, the premotor and association cortex is related to the limbic system as well. And the limbic system is the seat of emotion or the mo- motor primary motor area. Right. Uh, primary uh, emotion, emotion area, area. Sorry, emotion area. Oh God, I'm sorry, Grant. <laughs> Need those lollies. <laughs> All right. So that's the motor activity of the frontal lobe. You okay with that? I think so. Let's talk about the cognitive function of the yeah. of the frontal lobe. Now this is going way towards the front. So what we often refer to as the as the prefrontal cortex. Now the prefrontal cortex has a lot to do with um, emotion and judgment and uh, understanding of behavior within a social construct or a social context. And the reason why we know this is because basically the reason why we know why any lobes of the brain do any function is because of disease models. Because people have had bleed outs or they've had damage to certain areas of the brain or they've had surgeries which have affected certain parts of the brain. And we've just basically witnessed how they act or how they move or how they respond to this damage. And that's how we know what parts of the brain do what. Ah, so if we knock out certain parts of the brain, we can realize, well, if they've lost a particular type of behavior or changed it, it must have been responsible, that region of the brain must have been responsible for that particular characteristic. Perfect. And we see that often with stroke, right? Stroke patients, whether they lose the ability to speak or move certain parts of their body or whatever it may be, gives us an indication of what lobe is affected. Now, with... When it comes to, so for example, we, we've figured out that the prefrontal cortex, I'm talking about right at the front of the brain, is what we refer to as the higher order reasoning, understanding area, a part of the brain which we don't often attribute to other organisms. Uh, sometimes we attribute it to primates, but we often say that our prefrontal cortex is uh, more highly developed than even primates. And that has to do with the, our very strong social understanding. So, people who have prefrontal dementia, okay, so this is neurons dying off in that prefrontal lobe, they've got problems with um, emotion and judgment, and they often are quite careless, so carelessness, um, changes in personal habits and disinhibition, so this is very common for frontal lobe dementia. Now, 
This is because the frontal lobe has strong connections with that limbic system, the emotional area, and will tell us how we should in certain social environments. So you know that you will act one way with me compared to when the pro vice chancellor of the university is in the room, right? True. So, and that's because your prefrontal cortex or your frontal lobe is working well. There's no damage to that area. Now, you've heard of a, uh, a gentleman in the 1800s called Phineas Gage? Yeah, he was my great-great-great-grandfather, I think. Really? Yeah. You got the greats right there? <laughs> probably not. You're probably too many greats. Oh. Because he was only... When was it? Well, he was, he was from memory, 1823 to 1860. Oh. Or when I say from memory, I mean it's written down on a piece of paper <laughs> in front of me. And he worked on the, the railroads back when they were building the extensive uh, railway system in the States. Hmm? The United States, that is. Yes. Are you from America? No. You're not? No, no. But what about a your A little accent? bit further north. Ah, where are you, Abu? Antarctica. Antarctica? No, no. Canadian. further south, yeah. Ah, so the land of the maple. Wild and free. Is that is that true? Is that what it says? The wild and free? No, I just made that up. Oh. What is the Canadian motto? True north, strong and free, I think. Is there? Is yours? That's, that's from our anthem, yeah. How's that? Sing the song? No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> We'd lose far too many listeners. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> they think We've their radios were broken or something. I know, I know. So, Phineas Gage worked on the railway in the States, not in Canada, and he was blowing up a certain part of the land so that he could clear it, put some uh, railway down, and a metal spike about a meter in length and about three centimeters in width with a very sharp point on the end was blown up by the TNT and went straight through his head from under his jaw up through the top of his head, piercing through his frontal lobe. So he essentially gave himself a lobotomy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He did. He actually gave a lobotomy. He survived for at least a decade after. Wow, but you know impressive. what they said? His behavior grossly changed. They said he was a well-mannered, kept-to-himself, nice individual prior to the accident. And afterwards, he, like what we said, carelessness. He, his personal habits changed. And his, he had this disinhibition. So basically, he would just do whatever he wanted to do. He'll did talk any way he wanted in social... Did they take the rod out, or did he live take, the rest no, of his life? No, he took the rod out, thankfully. A um, meter-long rod in his... Yeah, yeah, I don't know how we would go with that. Yeah. He, he, There's photos of him online, and he's got this bung eye, his eyes all closed up, I think, obviously because it's busted. Because the frontal lobe also has to do with eye movement. So there's the frontal eye movement area of the frontal lobe, which helps our eyes move in, in a particular direction. Not all directions, but a particular direction. Oh, so again, more motor activity. More motor activity. I think it's laterally, but I may be wrong, so don't quote me on that. So that's basically the frontal lobe has to do with that behavior. Social interactions, moral judgments, what is fair, self-control. That's why there's a, a strong um, connection between the frontal lobe and dopamine-producing uh, neurons. And we know dopamine is that feel-good sort of molecule. Again, I'm just grossly oversimplifying it. That reward molecule, again, oversimplifying it. It's a neurotransmitter that's that plays a role in uh, reward and also in motor movement as well. And so that's where this whole um, self-control thing comes into play because some patients with Parkinson's disease have reduced dopamine levels and this reduces their feeling or need um, uh, to do stuff. They have this, um, it's not a reduced energy, but it's like a reduced 
reward system so they they don't want to go out and do certain things they and when they take their drugs so these anti-parkinsonian drugs which boost dopamine they can start getting addictive behaviors hypersexuality gambling all these types of things have been shown to come in individuals who have been given parkinsonian drugs to promote dopamine and that's how the brain's sort of communicating with itself is it the dopamine the The dopamine we should do a podcast on Neurotransmitters. You know what? That's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Maybe the next podcast will be on neurotransmitters and drug abuse. Oh, good plan. Let's take drug abuse into it as well because a lot of our listeners are medicos and nurses and paramedics. I was say, where, where were you going with that? <laughs> yeah, a lot of our listeners <laughs> love to abuse the drugs. No. Maybe. Who knows? That's up to them. All right. I think I've spoken enough about the frontal lobe. I think I've spoken enough in general, but. <laughs> Fairly. It's an important lobe, though. It's an important lobe. Yeah. You want to talk about the parietal lobe, just the the lobe that's just behind the frontal lobe? It's a good lobe too. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not as good as the frontal lobe, but it's pretty impressive. Okay, tell me about it. Uh, Well, essentially, I think you you mentioned briefly about motor activity or talked quite a bit about, yeah, nothing you ever say is brief, um, (laughs) about motor activity. Um, But yeah, essentially when we look at the parts of the brain or the cortex of the brain, there's actually... Um, sort of four basic functions of it. And so we've got, as you mentioned, the motor activity. We've got sensory information. Mm-hmm. We've got association. We're bringing those different types of information together. Yep. That's unimodal, so one type of information. Okay. We've also got multimodal association areas. Like, so what's that mean? Uh, like, for example, with your frontal lobe, your prefrontal um, cortex, that's referring to a multimodal association area. We're bringing lots of different types of information. So uh, gotcha. hearing, sound, taste, uh, all the different sort of phases or emotion or and, and even what's happening with it with our motor movement as yeah, well exactly so it'd be multimodal okay okay so we're so you've talked a lot about the the motor information so yep. motor information at the front and i tend to remember that by thinking when you're moving and to be moving forward so it's the front of the brain that's responsible for motor information see that's that's why you're the man grant yeah. that's how yeah. no wonder students love you yeah. no wonder they evaluate you very well and me not as well yeah <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> you can't be quite as good. That's true. You'll get there. Uh, well, I'll get you fired one day. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But going back to the so parietal lobe being more so at the back of the brain, we suspect it's going to be sensory, and in fact, that is the case. Okay. So okay. sensory in in what sense? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so if we look at so uh, you mentioned before about that central sulcus yep. that's dividing the frontal and the parietal lobes, and the gyrus just in front of that is your primary motor cortex. If we look at the gyrus just behind that, so the post-central gyrus, that's our primary somatosensory cortex. And that's in the parietal lobe. Yes, exactly. So, so the motor cortex in frontal lobe, uh, sensory cortex in parietal lobe, but they're right next to each other. Exactly. Right, right above the central sulcus. Yes, okay, you got cool. it. Okay, so yep. we got our primary... And the key word is somatosensory, meaning that it's sensory information coming from the body. So we're mainly looking at things like tactile information. It could be proprioception. What's that? So that's information from our muscles or our joints, which essentially allows us to determine what position our body is in space. Oh, okay, that's, so I like to give the example of if you close your eyes and then ask, some, or ask somebody to close their eyes and touch their nose without looking, how do you know? So everyone can do it. How do I you can't. know? Well, it's because you're usually pissed all the time. <laughs> but how do we know where our nose is? It sounds like a silly question because we can't see it and we can't feel it. It's on our body. We know where it is because, we're, like you said, of proprioception. So we've got yeah, exactly. uh, receptors that tell us how 
contracted a muscle is at any moment in time, how stretched a tendon or ligament is, and that sort of tells us where we are in our own space. This has a lot to do with the cerebellum too, which we'll talk briefly about later. But go Very on. True. Proprioceptive yeah. receptors. So proprioception, yep. and as I said, sort of like basic tactile information. So when someone touches you, you know you've been touched. I said no, Grant. No, sorry. <laughs> I can't help myself. <laughs> so... This is all going to this somatosensory cortex yes, so that in the first little lobe. that post central gyrus, that first little bump behind the central sulcus, and it's similar to that motor mapping that you talked about before, in that we have this map or homunculus um, where we have that similar map of where this information is going to. So the information going from the hand is going to a certain region within that um, post central gyrus or somatosensory cortex. Oh, okay, I, I've got. Can I? Say a very interesting fact about the homunculus, the somatosensory homunculus. I know, even if you said, if I said no, you would anyway. So. Correct. You just got to go with me yeah. here, Grant. So, like I said, with the uh, motor homunculus, where different parts of the brain are topographically ma- mapped for different parts of the body for motor movement. Now, like Grant said, different parts of the body are mapped to this different parts of the somatosensory cortex for for sensation, taking something mm-hmm. in, and basically. Again, most laterally, like towards the ear, and again, it's contralateral, like the motor cortex. So you, if I touch something with my pointer finger from my left hand, it's going to go to my right somatosensory cortex. Now, if you look at the mapping, most laterally is going to be tongue, and then as it moves up towards the central, it goes from tongue to lips to nose to eye to hand to arm to body to legs to feet. Okay, so it's sort of mapped similar to the way, you know, from top to toe, right? Except it's going from lateral all the mm. way up to central. Even and the size of those regions can be quite different. Yes, okay. absolutely. So have you ever seen that homunculus where he's got giant, giant hands and giant face and, and giant, giant genitals? <laughs> he, I don't look at that part. Well, it's it's part of anatomy, and the reason why is because the more sensory neurons you have in a particular area of your body the larger the area dedicated to that part of the body will be topographically in the sensory cortex. So that would make sense if we got more information going there. When you so that's why hands are bigger, to, right? Yeah, because we've got be very... It's quite numerous sensory neurons in, there, in our fingertips because we need to be able to uh, pick up fine objects, for example. Our tongue as well is quite sensitive. Lips are sensitive. Parts of the body which are quite large but only have a very small area dedicated to it in the sensory cortex is like the back, for example, because there's very few sensory neurons. There's, you know, millimeters separating two sensory neurons in our back. And you can test this out by, if you get a friend... Two-point discrimination. Two-point discrimination. So you get two very sharp pencils. I was going to say pins, but you end up pricking each other. So you get two very sharp pencils. Tell your friend to close their eyes and open their hand out and put the two pencils... Right next, the points right next to each other on the hand, and ask them if they feel them as two separate points or the same point, and then slowly separate them out and find out how far or how long it takes before they know it's two separate pencils. For the hand, it's going to be less than a millimeter, and they're going to know it's two separate pencils because you have so many sensory neurons. Do it on the back, you'll probably have a centimeter or two gap between two pencils, and they'll still think it's one pencil because oh, so of the lack lot, of sensory neurons. A lot less dense exactly. receptors. Not the friend. No. Yeah. So, now, th- th- that wasn't the fact I wanted to state. Oh, okay. I've got enough topic. <laughs> it's nearly been 50 minutes. So, the fact I wanted to state is this, that people or individuals who have lost a limb 
right? So let's say they lose their arm, sometimes can get something called phantom limb pain just or lose phantom it. limb syndrome. So let's just say maybe uh, diabetic neuropathy or an accident and the arm has to be amputated. Oh, now I want you yeah. to think about this, right? How many sensory neurons there are in the hand? A lot. All the way down the arm. Let's say that the arm is removed at the elbow. Gotcha. So all these sensory neurons have been go- are gone. But the pathway to the brain and the area of the brain that's mapped to the hand is still present. Oh, but so it, what's it going to do? So is it receiving any signal? No, it wouldn't no, be. No, it's not. And we know that the brain is so hungry for sensory input. For example, now this may or may not be correct. I've always thought <laughs> this is the case. You're going to say it anyway. I'm going to say it anyway because I think it's interesting. The hypnagogic jerks, right? What? Hypnagogic jerks. What are you calling me? So I'm calling you a hypnagogic jerk, Grant. You know when you're about to fall asleep, usually within the first few minutes you fall asleep and then you wake yourself up by throwing your arms out and you just have this big jerk, right? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) As in you throw your arms out and you wake up. I've always thought that was like you were falling off a cliff or something. Well, that's usually part, so you you sort of have this little dream as soon as you get in and often it's you're falling off a cliff or whatever. This hypnagogic jerk, as far as I'm aware, like I said, it could be be wrong. Yeah, it could be wrong. But when you're going to sleep, you've had all day of sensory bombardment to your brain. So your brain's getting all this input and it's, you know, it's loving it. It's going, you know, the foot's been touched, the arm's been touched, legs been touched, you know, wind's blowing across the face. It's getting all this input. And as soon as you go to sleep and you start to shut things off, the brain is starting to get starved of sensory input. And it's wondering what the hell's going on. And it's thinking, are you dying? Is, is this individual dead? Let's figure this out. And they throw out a strong motor output. And throwing out a strong motor output throws the limbs everywhere and you touch things. And touching things sends that sensory impulse back to the brain. You go, oh, everything's all good. You can go to sleep. Now, Let's say, what does this have to do with your limb loss of limb? All right. <laughs> okay, so. We're getting there. Brain's hungry for sensory input. Gotcha. Some individuals, if they lose a limb, they, like I said, the part of the brain dedicated to that limb is still there. And it's hungry. So what can happen is this. Let's say the arm is gone. What's next to the arm on the topographical map of the somatosensory cortex? The face. face. It's the face. So what can actually happen is uh, sensory plasticity plasticity of sensory neurons. They can project across. Because these neurons dedicated to the hand at the somatosensory cortex, isn't getting any signals that can project across and vice versa, the neurons of the face can project across to where the hands are and you get this sort of crossover so that you can take these patients and you can rub a cotton bud or a wet cotton bud across their face and you ask them, where do they feel this? And they go, well, yeah, I feel it across my face and my cheek and then my jaw, but I also feel it across my thumb and then my index finger, my point of finger, my pinky finger. So even though that part of the, bar- the body's gone, they still feel They can still or- feel their hand because remember, anytime we feel something, we're not actually feeling it in the hand or at the foot or at the face. We're feeling it in the brain right. and we think we're feeling it at that body part. Wow. That was worth the lead up. That was. Back to you, Greg. I can't remember what we were talking about. Parado. Parado, yes. And you were talking about the sensory cortex. Yes, somatosensory cortex, where all that information from the body itself is coming up to that post-central gyrus. And then if you recall, I mentioned before about the association areas. And so just behind that primary somatosensory cortex is your somatosensory association area. And that, again, brings together all these little bits of information along with other information from the brain. So, for example, your 
yourself quite often find yourself digging around in your handbag um, <laughs> for whatever it might be, whether it's your keys or something you've lost. Lipstick or lollies. Lipstick, yeah, any of, any of that. <laughs> Essentially, all that, those bits of tactile information, whether it be um, the temperature of the object, how hard or soft it is, um, the shape of it, all those different bits of information come together in that association area. So it allows us to essentially give a little bit more meaning to the objects that we're feeling or that information that we're bringing up, those individual bits of information. I was thinking about this recently because I'm a newborn baby, right? So we know that, like, just like you said with that association cortex, if I put my hand in my pocket and I've got something in my pocket and I feel it, I'm, let's just say it's a, a, a coin, right? I can put my hand in my pocket and feel the coin and I know that it's a coin. And the reason why I know it's a coin is because I draw upon past experience, so association cortex, and I draw upon a couple of different things. So I draw upon how hard it is, how cold it is, the texture, the shape, and whether I've felt something of similar texture and shape and, and, and temperature before, right? Think about my baby. Any sensory input coming to my baby... Is going to be be new. new. And so I understand things within a particular context only because I've experienced it before. How warped is the reality of my child when it's taking in some sort of sensory input without any prior context? Do they see the world the same way as we see the world? Because... or, or differently, because they don't have prior experience to pull upon. Do you know what I mean? I suppose they're developing those yeah. experiences as they but go. But it does so. the very first experience, is it warped in regards to current reality? Anyway, yeah, must be. That's, a, must that's, be. that's a consciousness question. Or they're not using their association areas as much because they don't know what to associate it with. Exactly. And they've got no... So again, we have an emotional attachment, whether you like it or not, with every object, with everything, right? They don't. So no wonder their response to things are strange. You're like, that's funny. Why aren't they laughing? They don't know that's funny yet. They haven't developed something funny. They think poo in their pants is funny. Well, I think poo in their pants yes. is funny too, but do you know what I mean? Yeah. All right. Sorry. Keep going. What were we talking about? Oh, yes. The parietal lobe. Yep. So we had the association areas. And then remember I said that fourth area was our multimodal association areas. Yes. So that's where we're bringing lots of different types of information together. Um, and some of those also are connected with our motor output, okay? Because obviously in response to some sort of sensory information, we quite often want to create a, a motor output, mm. whether it's connected to the the prefrontal or, sorry, the premotor cortex or our primary motor cortex, okay? We usually want to produce this response. And so quite often there's lots of connections between the regions of the parietal lobe um, and that motor cortex, and that can result in lots of different abnormalities, as you mentioned before, if we see things with stroke patients or patients that have had lesions on certain parts of the brain, they're able to work out what these issues are. And so we have this issue, for example, something known as contralateral neglect. Oh, what's that? So contralateral is other side of the body. We said that. Okay. As we said, the right side of the brain sort of controls the left side of the body. And essentially what happens is they tend to neglect or not even be aware of certain parts of their body or certain objects that are on one side of their their body versus the other one. So, for example, if you've got contralateral or a lesion on the right side in that parietal lobe or that region in the multimodal association areas, essentially they don't even believe that that left side of their body is theirs or belongs to them, or if they're reading a sentence, they'll only read read the part of the sentence that's on certain regions within that page or an object. See, I read... 
That's interesting. I read this in a there's a Oliver Sacks died recently. I think died last year actually. So he was a well-known neurologist. He wrote a number of books. Great book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Which is again, they're all case studies. There was a man who actually mm-hmm. mistook his wife for a hat, but there's also another patient in there who kept throwing himself out of bed in the middle of the night. Right? And they didn't know why this was happening until they found out that what was happening was he would wake up in the middle of the night and go someone else's leg is in this bed. He could see that the leg was attached to his own body. He could, but he, because he just didn't have that connection of that leg with himself, the understanding, the feeling of it, he's like, this is a practical joke. Someone's attached a leg to me for some reason. He just couldn't comprehend it. So he'd grab the leg and throw it out and obviously his body would go with it. And so they figured out that it was this contralateral neglect. Crazy, it's huh? Amazing. Because of a tumor that was in his brain. Yeah. I guess it just shows you how specific regions are, as you said, mapped to specific functions. Some people have gone body. so far as to cut limbs their own body. And they say, strangely enough, now I feel whole once these limbs have been removed. they didn't think it was part of their body. Yeah. Due to that lack of association. Insane. Anything else hopefully with the parietal? That, hopefully that never happens to me. Yeah, well... Uh, parietal lobe, there's also uh, the regions associated with language as well. Oh, okay. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm not sure if you mentioned with your frontal lobe. Oh, I forgot. The, I was too busy the motor areas yeah. that are involved in speech. So producing the speech, producing the movements of the tongue or the lips, which allows us to, to speak. So that's called Broca's area. So like Grant said, in the, in the frontal lobe, toward laterally of the frontal lobe, there's Broca's area, and Broca's area allows us to develop the the motor movement associated with producing speech, speech production. So being able to produce words. And so there's been people who have had tumors or bleeds or some sort of lesions or damage to that area in the frontal lobe. And this has led to them being able to understand language, because Grant's about to talk about language understanding mm-hmm. in a second. That's in the temporal, uh, parietal lobe. Um, or is it in the temporal lobe? It's in temporal lobe. Sort of, yeah, connected. It's, yeah, between it's the in two. multiple lobes, yeah. But, Individuals who have lesions in this frontal lobe Broca's area can understand language, just speaking it's difficult. So I may ask this person, what's the time? And they understood it, and they want to say five o'clock, but they go, clock, time, number, and that's how they speak. Right. Which is difficult, obviously, for them. Anyway, so, so, yeah, so that's the thank you for bringing that Broca's up, Broca's area. aphasia. Broca's aphasia is okay, what that's where, called. Exactly, where they... They know what they want to say. They just have difficulty saying it, so they might be able to express themselves, but in very sort of um, unstructured sentences. Yeah. Okay, but yeah, associated with that in sort of the sensory area, so a rat parietal temporal lobe location, so Wernicke's area. Yeah. Um, that's also involved in in language and also very closely connected with the Broca's area, as you can imagine, and that's more so involved in understanding language so because it's sensory that's things like being able to read the language being able to understand if someone's spoken with you yep. or to you um, and being able to understand um, what they're said and so, so you can also have aphasia in in that respect as well it's called fluent aphasia yes it is yes yeah. that's another um, name for it as opposed to expressive aphasia which is the the broker's area one where they can't express it the information um so yeah so fluent aphasia as you said essentially we can't understand that written language so agraphia or inability to read yeah so alexia um and so yeah essentially they might create what's known as a word salad 
So they can speak, they so can they produce can speak, the sound. It's relatively fluent, but the words themselves don't necessarily make a lot of sense. They might insert... Give me an example. They might insert words that don't make sense. So if I say, Grant, what's the time? What may be your response? I could say the boat, six o'clock, down by the river, or Nekamnath. <laughs> what's that? <laughs> That's just a made-up word. Ah, okay, gotcha. Okay. So, yeah, so essentially... Um, so they can produce sound. They can produce the sounds, but the words themselves don't necessarily have any meaning or putting the words together, um, they sort of lose the meaning. And that's fluent aphasia with lesions or damage to Wernicke's, Wernicke's area, area. In the in the parietal temporal lobe. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, as opposed to the Broca's area. Nice. Um, what else? Anything else with the parietal? I think that's it for parietal. Maybe you want to go out and talk about Temporal, since Let's we sort of mentioned that one. So temporal lobe, I won't go too much about this, but like Grant said, we've got that language um, comprehension area in the temporal lobe. But we've also, for the temporal lobe, you can sort of break it up into the, the medial and the anterior temporal lobe. And what you'll find is that the medial temporal lobe plays a role in emotion and memory and learning. And the anterior temporal lobe uh, has plays a role in that proper naming, facial recognition, and some social function as well. Now, if you think about the whole memory and learning and emotion in the medial temporal lobe, again, you can have forms of Alzheimer's disease that affect this area. Same with schizophrenia as well. Schizophrenia can affect frontotemporal lobe too. So frontotemporal lobe dementia, frontotemporal lobe schizophrenia, and so forth. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about with the temporal lobe, which I thought was very interesting, is that there's a type of epilepsy. Now, epilepsy is this unpatterned misfiring of neurons, um, and you can have ep- epilepsy of the temporal lobe, uh, so called TLE, temporal lobe epilepsy. And one of the manif- manifestations of this is hyperreligiosity. What the heck is that? So, hyperreligiosity. Uh, these individuals during their seizures can have these very strong experiences of the spiritual nature or of the religious nature. Some have said when they come out of their seizures that they have spoken to God or they have bared witness to the universe or they now understand the meaning of life and so forth. And so there was a, is a neurologist or a neuroscientist who investigated this, um, V.S. Ramachandran. Very cool guy. If you if you look up YouTube and have it, he's very well-spoken, V.S. Ramachandran. And he was talking about temporal lobe epilepsy and talking about hyper-religiosity. And he wanted to know whether it's because, the, like I said, temporal lobe has a plays a role in emotion, whether the seizure is just heightening emotion. And if you heighten emotion, you're going to heighten religiosity because it's a very emotive state to be in when you're in a religious state. And so he did some experiments where he would show images to these individuals with temporal lobe epilepsy that were neutral images, uh, sexually arousing images. Yeah. I like those ones. And (laughs) religious images. There's none in here, so none Ah. for you to look at. Now, what they found was he was under the, he was thinking that, okay, if the temporal lobe epilepsy just hyperstimulates the emotional aspect, then you should get a hyper-response for the sexual and a hyper-response for the religious. And he found that he actually got a reduced response for the sexual images and this increased response for the religious images. Now, he explicitly stated that this does not mean that there is a God portion in the brain. He wanted to make that clear. But that the temporal lobe may play a role in individuals having 
uh, some sort of religious understanding within their lives. Interesting, huh? Wow. Why? Who knows? So that's the temporal lobe. That's all I really want to say about the temporal lobe. What about occipital? Occipital lobe. Again, not a lot of information. Again, remember our our posterior portion of the brain is involved in sensory information. Um, so in particular, the occipital lobe is all about visual sensations. Okay. Okay. So we've got the information coming in via the eyes, retina, through the optic nerves, through that optic chiasma, or the place where it sort of splits the other side. So again, it's contralateral, yeah. or generally the information goes to the opposite side of the brain. And it's important to say it's not that the right eye goes to the left hemisphere and the left eye goes to the right. It's that the right visual field of both eyes go to the left hemisphere, Correct. and the left visual field of both eyes go to the right hemisphere. This exactly. is important because I'm going to talk about the corpus callosum soon. Oh, I can't wait. No, oh, I know. Yeah. I've been waiting all day. <laughs> Luckily, what is it? it's early. It's 10 a.m. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, so occipital lobe, mainly there for visual information. So again, we've got our primary visual cortex where that information goes to originally, and then we've got our association areas sort of mapped around that. And again, that's about bringing together the different bits of information. So for example, um, I know you really like flowers. I do. Okay, you're a very sensitive guy. You like um giving your partner flowers all the time. I do. She doesn't appreciate it, but I just like it. Yeah, exactly. And so essentially this association areas help you to identify what type of flower it is, okay, by not just the color, but also the shape of the petals, whatever it might be. So lots of different types of information. Mm. And again... Whether it's hibiscus, daffodils... Yeah, exactly. I I mean, I really... I've got all all types. Yeah. We we don't have enough time for you to list all the flowers that you know. Oh, mate, give it... Give me six hours. Give me six hours, exactly. And so again, even more to that, there's even more specific association areas would allow us to identify, say, faces or motion. Mm. And so again, it comes down to um, identifying these regions based on people that have had lesions or damage to these parts of the brain where they essentially lose the ability to, say, recognize faces. I always forget the name or the term used to describe that <laughs> Would you forget faces? No. Yeah. <laughs> Prosopagnosia? Yeah, no, yes. That's the one. Yeah. Okay, that's a tough one to um, to say. Um, no, and then, not for me, it's not. No. And then there's Because the I'm a hyper-recognizer, Grant. I was <laughs> yeah. telling you about that. Yeah, I remember. That was pretty impressive. I uh, Top top small percentage on the planet of people, I'd never forget a face. So if I ever want to remember someone's face... Use my brain. I'll use your brain, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And even uh, um, motion, they even have such thing as motion blindness, where they essentially aren't able to see things moving. They just see them in sort of separate pictures. So, for example, so if there's traffic a lesion is in going the by. Lobe, yeah, exactly. So what, what what do they see? So instead of seeing a fluid image, what do they see? They like would see sort of two separate images separated by time. So let's say, for example, with traffic, they might see a car um, at one end of the street, and then a couple of seconds later at the other end of the street without the motion in between. Or so same like taking a moving. bunch of photographs and yeah, then exactly. recapturing what happened by just looking at the photographs in a row. Exactly. So like Ooh. filming without the um, process where it's moved so quickly that it creates motion. They yeah. essentially lose that ability. Because we do still have a shutter speed, just like a camera. Exactly. But our our occipital lobe in association association with other areas basically make it seamless for us. Yeah. In actual fact, we're blinded to to a good percentage of yeah. what's around us. Sort We've of got very poor vision. Creates individual bits of information between those mm. um, to make up for what for what's we're not actually seeing. That's amazing. Yeah. Is that all about the occipital lobe? I think that's about it for the occipital lobe. 
We'll do an insula for, we'll take 30 seconds on the insula. Yeah, that's about the last one. So, and then we'll do corpus callosum. What do you reckon? Yeah, I know you're waiting for corpus callosum. Oh, because so. it's super interesting. Split brain experiments, separating consciousness yeah. of two hemispheres. Oh, boy. Okay, insula. Let's talk about this. If you were to just sort of lift the uh, frontal lobe, temporal lobe apart from each other and have a look, you'll find the insula. I heard a researcher who performs her research on the insula to describe it. She asked the audience, hands up if anyone has ever had food poisoning. Grant's put his hand up. Grant, what was the food that you were poisoned by? It was actually the last time I went to Canada. It was a chicken salad sandwich. Chicken salad sandwich. Yeah, I I, I thought I was going to die. Wow. Now, has that changed your experience with chicken salad sandwiches? Did for a while. I'm getting slowly getting back into the chicken salad. Okay. Thank your insula. Thank you, insula. There you go. So the insula, again, uh, digestation. Is that the word? Or just gustatory? Gustatory or? Gustatory? Well, no, digestation is uh, when you, that's eating. It is. Something yeah. to do with eating. Yeah. But that's the gust yeah. part. So gustatory, so gustation, would you say gustation? It's like gustoff. Gustav. That's a name, good name for a chef. That is. I think there's a oh. movie, kids movie. Didn't Gustav even think about the, that. The chef. So basically eating and your association with the foods you eat and your understanding. And again, as you can tell, pretty much every one of these lobes and, and cortices that we've spoken about have, cross, have functions that sort of cross over with one another, right? And a lot of that includes emotion and behavior and social construct and all this type so of that stuff. That was limbic system as well, though. And emotion. limbic system, which is the you know that emotional area. And so again, that's what the insula has as well. It sort of tells you, okay, you've been poisoned by this food. Maybe avoid it in the future. And so you now have it, that negative connotation associated with that food that made you sick prior. Make sense? Makes sense. Yeah. Now something. We, now this is going to lead on to the corpus callosum. Okay. When we spoke about Broca's area for language production, and Wernicke's area for uh, understanding, understanding or comprehending language, we didn't state that actually for most individuals, up to 95% of individuals, these areas are predominantly hemisphere dominant, which means they're located just in one hemisphere. And so Broca's and Wernicke's are predominantly left hemisphere. Did you know that? No. Now this is important. Why? Because when you see an object... Remember how you also said for the occipital lobe, things in your left visual field go to the right hemisphere right. and those in the right visual field go to the left? Okay. So let's say you saw something in your left visual field, like a cup. That image will go to your right hemisphere, specifically the right occipital lobe. Right. And if I then asked you what did you see, you need to understand what you saw and produce the words to state what you saw, which means it needs to go to your left, left. hemisphere. Because oh, that was... Does that make Responsible sense? Responsible for language, yes. Yes. So you need to throw that to your left hemisphere and then you can speak and say what it was that you saw. Now, the reason why or the the underlying reason why we can throw that piece of information from the right occipital lobe to the left hemisphere, so from right to left, is because we've got this connection between the two hemispheres called the corpus callosum. Oh, so that's that white matter that we were talking about. Big, thick, white tracts that connect the left and right, uh, right hemisphere together. And that's what they do. They allow for both hemispheres to speak. Now, this is 
come to in recent decades it's come to light that this corpus callosum is actually quite important now there are individuals who had full complex seizures so basically a seizure which when generated would propagate across the entire brain and that means it would need to propagate across the corpus callosum right now Surgeons thought, well, if we can sever or cut this corpus callosum, then we could limit these seizures and these full seizures that these individuals are having will be at least in part mitigated, not as severe. So they did this procedure called a corpus callosotomy. Otomy means to cut, right? So they did a corpus callosotomy, cutting the corpus callosum. These patients are fine. You can't really notice. There's no deficits, no noticeable deficits. Behavior's fine. Everything seems to be fine. However, they found in a subset of these individuals something very strange. What they found was that now that they've separated the two hemispheres by cutting the corpus callosum, the two hemispheres could take in signals from the world and make sense of them independently and sometimes very differently. Oh, so they couldn't talk to each other anymore. That's right. What would happen for some of these individuals? So here's two examples. One person would go shopping. They'd be in the supermarket pushing their shopping trolley and they'd go, oh, there's some Cocoa Pops. I want to grab some of those. They'll reach out with their left hand, grab the Cocoa Pops. They keep walking. Oh, some butter. I'll take that left hand, put the butter in. Then they'll get to the uh, checkout and they'll look in their shopping trolley. They'll find there's items in there that they didn't want, that they didn't choose. And that's because the other hemisphere made a decision without letting them know and took it with the other hand. Wow. How's that? That's so freaky. Freaky. In, in addition, a man would often say that he would be putting his pants on with his right, right hand, I should probably say, especially with that shopping experience, the right hand, because that's the left hemisphere where you can speak and understand. That's the one you're most consciously aware of. You pull your pants up with your right hand, and then the left hand would be pulling the pants down because they didn't want to wear those yeah. pants. So the right hemisphere didn't want to wear those pants, left hemisphere did. It'd take a long time to get dressed. It did. Some of these people would be wearing two items of clothing at the same time. I do that with socks sometimes. And that's because you're a moron. Yeah. <laughs> so this, these individuals were taken and used for what's called split-brain experiments. So the godfather of cognitive neuroscience, Michael Gazziniger, pioneered these split-brain experiments. And what he did was he took these individuals and he would project up images to different fields of view. And basically, as an example, he would project up an image of a cup to the right field of view. That goes to your left Left hemisphere. He would ask them, what did you see? And because it's the left hemisphere where you can comprehend language and speak, they would say, a cup. Then he would project an image to the left field of view. Let's just say it's a cup again. It would go to the right hemisphere. He would ask them what they saw but he, they could not throw the understanding. So the right hemisphere knew what they saw. They know it's a cup, right. but they couldn't throw it to the left hemisphere for understand and verbalize, and he would say, I didn't see anything. So he's not uh, aware that he saw anything at all. So they got the information coming in, but they can't produce a response. That's right. But if you give that individual a pen in their left hand, which is controlled by that right hemisphere, yeah. and say, draw a picture of the image that you did not see, They'll draw the cup. Wow. Because that right hemisphere is controlling that left hand. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the information doesn't have to cross to the other side in order to do that. That's right. That's right, because it crosses down in lower regions below the corpus callosum. Right. So the brain was separated, not just physically, but also 
in regards to separating the mind out. Now, this is the last part I'll talk about the corpus callosum, right? They did some experiments in that. This is one experiment they did. They flashed up two images simultaneously to the individuals who had a corpus callosotomy. Right field of view, they flashed up a chicken foot, right? Which means a chicken foot. So, which means it goes foot of a chicken. Foot of a chicken. Gotcha. Which means it goes to the left hemisphere, and they know what they saw, and they can say what they saw. So that's the first point. At the same time, they project an image to the left hemisphere, which was a scene of a house covered in snow and a driveway covered in snow. Nice. And that went to the right hemisphere, and they had no idea they saw it. Consciously, they had no idea. Right. Okay? Now, then they said to the person, there is a selection of cards with pictures in front of you. Pick two cards that best encapsulate what you saw from the two images. Now, of those card options, one was a chicken. And straight away, selected the chicken. Now, selected the chicken with the right hand because left hemisphere controls the right hand, saw it, and could verbalize, why did you choose that chicken? He goes, because I saw a chicken yeah. foot. Chicken foot, here's a chicken, makes sense. Got the link. All right, choose a card that best suits the other image you saw. Now, remember that he has no idea that he saw that particular image. And he's going to use his left hand. And his left hand straight away picks up an image of a shovel. Right? Now, obviously, the reason why... The left hand, controlled by the right hemisphere, has picked up the shovel is because the right hemisphere saw a driveway full of snow no. to shovel the snow. But when you ask him, why did you choose the shovel? He has to make up an answer. And can, the left hemisphere confabulates an answer and says, oh, it's to clean up all the chicken poo. Because oh, he saw the chicken. Because he saw the chicken with that hemisphere. So he, he goes, I chose it for that reason, but that's not why. So it's telling you that you've got this confabulatory region in the left hemisphere that'll make stuff up mm. if it needs to. Right hemisphere is seeing its own things and the two aren't talking. That's, that, isn't that just amazing? That is crazy. All right, that's all I'll say. Corpus callosum. Should we finish with the cerebellum since it's been an hour and 20 minutes? <laughs> Let's finish with the okay, cerebellum. cerebellum. All right, where is it located, Grant? Cerebellum. I What's think- it mean, first of all? Uh, cerebellum, probably mini brain, miniature yeah. brain. Little uh, brain. Let's think of a miniature brain, sort of located posteriorly and just underneath the cerebellum. Looks like the cerebrum, but smaller, so it's cerebellum. So it's a little brain, and like you said, it's at the back. Tell me about it. What do you What do you know about the cerebellum? I usually think of the cerebellum as like the the dancer's brain. Uh, oh, I know, pretty impressive. God, you're poetic. Go on. What do yeah. you mean? Uh, just because you, think, you usually think of dancers as being quite coordinated um, and very graceful. Yes. And so that's essentially one of the main functions of the cerebellum is to provide this coordination to the, to our muscle or motor activity. That's a brilliant um, way of explaining it. The dancer's brain. Dancer's I'm going to use that in future lectures. That's cool. So proprioception, understanding where in your own space, yeah, picking so up signals coming from proprioceptive receptors in muscles and tendons and so forth, telling you how contracted or relaxed or whatever a yeah, muscle so may got, be. So that proprioception is going to the two areas. Because remember, we also said it went to the postcentral gyrus, ah, which yeah. allows us to consciously be aware of the information yep. and then sort of subconsciously to the cerebellum. So our body can use that information to help coordinate our muscle activities. So I use the example with students. When you're helping somebody move house, which I did recently, 
and they say, oh, can you pick that box up for me? Be careful. It's really heavy. So what do you do? You walk up to the box. You obviously bend with your knees and not with your back. And you pick it up and you're preparing your muscles to pick up this heavy box. Now, when you go to pick it up, you tense all these muscles. And let's say you pick it up and realize that they got the box wrong and it's empty. What stops you from over-contracting and flipping yourself backwards with so much contractile force? It's because as soon as you pick that box up, the signal went to your cerebellum and it fine-tuned the oh, motor so contraction and motor units. Instant feedback mechanism. Instant feedback. And then that stops you from doing a backflip from picking up right. what you thought was a heavy so box. So it's in constant communication with that uh, frontal cortex and that um, primary motor cortex to help fine-tune those movements. I also read a paper once. I haven't been able to find it again. So again, this may be wrong. You know when you're drunk, right? Well, you're not a big drinker. No. Well... Let's, we'll say that I'm, when you're I'm not either. I'm not, <laughs> I have a couple. Every weekend when you're drunk. Yeah. All right. So let's just say Grant's had too many drinks. What happens so is like he, one. he has one drink. He starts to get the pissy sort of wandering. He can't, you know, you know, you, you see on TV show cops, they pull somebody over and they tell them to walk the line, right? Walk the straight line, uh, touch your nose and so forth. That's all proprioception stuff. Right. Now, I read in an article, it's because L inhibits sodium potassium ATPase pumps in the cerebellum, inhibiting ce- cerebellar activity. That would make Do, sense. Have, yeah, it makes sense, but I haven't been able to find whether that Whether it's paper. true or not. Whether who it's knows? true or not. But when you look at people who have no cerebellum, which is people have been born with no cerebellum, or damage to the cerebellum, you can have something called cerebellar ataxia, and an ataxia is a movement disorder. And... There's some. Uh, there's a family in India with cerebellar ataxia. I think maybe due to a mutation. Maybe I'm not too sure. They can't stand up. They walk on their hands and f- feet like, like a four-legged animal. Right. Right. And that's because they can't stand up because the cerebellum doesn't allow they them to can't stand. Coordinate those actions. There's an individual. He's also got cerebellar ataxia. Who? So remember, this is a cool thing. When, with proprioception, your eyes will override any other proprioceptive activity, right? Right. So when you close your eyes, you can feel a little bit dizzy and you don't know where you are in your own space. As soon as you open your eyes, you can see where you are and that gives you an overriding feedback system. So this bloke with cerebellar ataxia, when he's walking, he has to look at everything is walking towards or near, otherwise he'll fall over. As soon as he closes his eyes... He doesn't have that... And loses that visual perception. Loses the visual perception and falls over. So that's cerebellar. Are we done? I think so. Otherwise, people are going to turn off. That's yeah. a good one. An hour and 25 minutes. People can take this, uh, you know, in their own stride, take their time, listen to it. I think we've got a and lot of good info that's here. only a small part of the brain. We haven't done that's the deeper aspects. All we've talked about is the cortex. Yeah. And the slightly deeper levels, but... Slightly. Slightly. So, all right. I think we'll do neurotransmitters and drug abuse next. That'll be cool, won't it? Huh. All right. So, everyone, if you like listening to this podcast, please give us a review on iTunes, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. We've also got a YouTube channel if you're preparing for your exams, want some anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology videos. We've got a YouTube channel, which is that Biological Sciences. We've got uh, Instagram page, which is at GU Biosciences, or type in Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike. We've got a Twitter page, which again is at GU Biosciences. And we've got a Facebook page, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical oh, Podcast. You guys we've are all it, over it. We've got it going on, man. We're covering all bases. If you want to write us an email or you want to let us know about a particular topic you want us to cover or correct us, because Grant's 
Grant and Matt are always wrong. Send us an email, gubiosciences at gmail.com. We love you all and speak to you soon. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for having me. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.